Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome to the regular Monday night Sangha community group here at Against the Stream. How many people here for the first time tonight? See some new faces. Welcome to all of you and anybody tuning in on Zoom for the first time. Welcome to you. Gensa Streams, a Buddhist meditation center where we practice and discuss and connect with each other about the application of the Buddha's teachings, how to apply it, train the mind in meditation, train the heart in compassion and forgiveness and, and wisdom. And um, just reflecting uh, my um, sobriety anniversary is this week. Um, and it's 34 years since I had a, a drink or a drug. And um, I got sober when I was 17. And then I was 17 years sober when I moved to Los Angeles. And this is also my 17th year of living in Los Angeles. So there's these 17s, 17 years of being a fuck up, <laughs> suffering and trying to run from my suffering. And then 17 years of recovery in Santa Cruz and San Francisco and New York City. And then 17 years here in LA. And this group, this Monday night group has been happening for 17 years. And since I moved here 17 years ago. Some of you are, have been around. Uh, a couple of you have been coming for a long time. Um, anyways, I was just thinking about that. I'd like to start our group by, the, in the service of connection and community and a core part of the Buddha's teachings, which is uh, we can't do this alone. We need wise friendships. We need support, encouragement, um, confrontation from other people who are also committed to this path, this practice. We need that. And so meditation center is, you know, one of the reasons why I've been running meditation centers all these years is because um, we need a place for our community to gather and where we can meet each other. I was at a wedding this weekend and um, there's a couple of 20 somethings who just come back from their first meditation retreat. And they were so just lit up with the Dharma. But also we had a lot of conversations about how they're the only people that they know who meditate. None of their, you know, they're in this sort of like just finished one of them, just, you know, grad school, one of them just finished undergrad. And, and they're in this place of like, we don't, you know, they're brothers. We don't know anybody that meditates. We went to this retreat. We're so excited about it, but our friends are still going to keg parties <laughs> or whatever the equivalent is these days. 
And so against the stream is a place and Buddhist sanghas, communities are a place where we can come together and meet other people who, who meditate. So I like to begin um, by proposing a kind of small group, a topic, a discussion so that you can talk to each other. That's how you meet each other. My own experience, my first seven, we'll say 17 years, that's probably not true, but we'll say my first 17 years or so, um, of going to meditation groups is that you had a teacher like me, somebody sitting up here and be like, I'm gonna tell you how it is. <laughs> and you come in and you'd meditate and you, then you listen to the Dharma talk and that's it. Maybe there were some questions from the audience, but, uh, and I never, I would go. And also because I didn't really like the people in the room, Buddhists are so boring. <laughs> I would never meet anybody. I'd go and be like, I'm hey, hippies, and then I'd leave. <laughs> and so I've been for a long time trying to create an environment where we talk to each other. And it's not just about listening to me, but it's about talking and listening to each other as well. So I have a question for you, a couple of reflections. And I think I'm going to talk a bit before we meditate tonight. I'd like to ask you to reflect on a couple of things. The first thing is, um, what are you afraid of? Just a little question. And reflect for a minute. Let your mind make the list of things that you're afraid of. And how the fear of whatever it is, affects your mind, affects your life, affects your sense of well-being. Seems like fear is a natural and unavoidable part of having a human mind and a nervous system. or nervous animals <laughs> uh, part of our instincts to live is based in fear of death, fear of pain, craving for pleasure. And reflecting on all the ways that that shows up in your life, the things you do and say and think about because you're trying to avoid something unpleasant happening that hasn't even happened yet, but you're afraid it might. How much of our planning mind is fueled by fear and anxiousness, worry about shit that may or may not ever happen, <laughs> but we're suffering about the possibility. We're afraid. core part of our meditation practice is to become intimate with and turn towards and know our minds and our emotions and ourselves. We don't, in, in Buddhism, we don't use meditation as an avoidance technique. We don't use it as a feel-good experience to um, 
you know, temporarily check out from our emotions and our thoughts. But what mindfulness, the mindfulness aspect of the Buddhist teachings is turning towards without judgment, turning towards our minds and saying like, oh, this is fear. And if, I mean, I just wonder, I always, I always wonder if we had like some counter, if you, you know, some kind of way to tally your mind, if your thoughts, how many of the thoughts that arise in your mind on a daily basis are fear-based, are worrying, are feeling anxious about something that is happening or might happen? Or... So what are you afraid of? First question, and there's all of those. And there's some probably generalizations that we could all relate to. And then you have your specific, some of us are more afraid of death. Maybe death is a, I heard this, my father, Stephen uh, Levine and Ram Dass used to both use this quote. And they said, um, Harvard, it was Harvard or Yale, some Ivy League school, did a study, <clears throat> 70s or something like that of uh, Americans' greatest fears. And um, death was number three. So maybe if you're, you know, maybe you kind of say like, yep, that's on my list, a little afraid of dying. Like, yeah. For some people it's number one, but in this survey study that they did, death was number three. Number one was speaking in public. <laughs> more afraid of being embarrassed, of feeling shame or embarrassment or more suffering more fear of self-consciousness than a non-existence, than death. Really telling, you know, our ego-identified culture and just humanity that so many of us are, are more worried about how we look, how we're perceived. than dying. I know you want to know what number two was, <laughs> but I never looked this study up and it wasn't part of their shtick. <laughs> they just gave number one and number three. So I'm just quoting the old hippies here. I'm sorry. Blame them. But it feels true when I hear that, my experience of that kind of self-consciousness um, about how I'm perceived. I'm not often worried about dying, but I am often concerned with what you think about me. My mind will, you know, think about that a lot more than it thinks about, like, am I gonna die today? So the second question for your reflection is, uh, what's your relationship like to fear? Do you have an awareness of and a relationship? If you've been meditating for some time, I hope the answer is yes, that it's not uh, fear just driving your life unconsciously, but that you've become aware of it and now you're relating to it. 
and you're naming it. Oh, this is a fear-based thought and feeling. It needs some kindness. It needs some understanding. It needs, it needs to be questioned. Is it even true? This fear. Often fear is a liar. Sometimes it's totally true. You know, there's really rational and healthy things to be afraid of. <laughs> you know, our own physical safety. And sometimes it's absolutely true. And it's like, yeah, it's like, be careful in traffic. Like you should be, you know, you're going a hundred miles per hour. A little nervousness appropriate. What's your relationship right now? Like to the fear-based thoughts and feelings that your mind produces and that your body experiences. Do you ignore it, push it away? Do you tend to it with your intentions of kindness and compassion and acceptance? Non-personal human emotion, just fear. So instead of my fear, I'm afraid, just being able to realize uh, fear has arisen in my mind. Right now, my mind's a little freaked out. <laughs> about something or other, a little nervous, a little anxious, worried. And being able to name, acknowledge, and be with that fear-based experience. How often are you, are we um, speaking, actually putting fear into action, speaking out of fear, what we're saying or what we're doing? How much of your life is being run by being afraid? Uh, and, you know, like I said, but it's very important. I don't, I don't feel like I have the best language for it, but we have to make some difference between healthy fear and neurotic fear, right? Because there's some healthy things to be concerned about. And often our mind is really quite concerned and afraid of things that uh, are incredibly unlikely and not worth spinning our wheels about, but it's not stopping us from spinning our wheels. What are you afraid of? What's your relationship like to fear? Uh, last question. Where do you feel fear in your body? Where does it manifest somatically, physically, when you're really afraid? You get a tight ass. <laughs> Sphinxter just puckers up. Like, Woo, fuck. <laughs> tight. Hard belly. It's armoring that sort of physical frontal tightness. A clenched jaw. You start grinding your teeth? Do you ball up your fists? You start sweating? <laughs> your neck start, you know, there are some places in your body and maybe you know this, you've investigated it. And if not, it's really important, you know, to look at how in our uh, emotions affect us physically and, and be mindful of the sensations of fear. Fear's mostly in the mind, but the mind 
controls the body. And then the body's experiencing it. The nervous system is agitated, affected. Okay, so we're going to talk about fear tonight and some of the Buddha's teachings and how to work with it and, and um, what, what meditation practices um, will be helpful to give us a wiser and wiser relationship to fear. And, and maybe this big, big question, is it possible to be free from fear? Fearless. Sounds fierce. Fearless. And would that even be healthy <laughs> to truly be fearless? So we're going to talk about all that tonight. But before I go on and on and before we meditate, I'd like to ask you to um, break into small groups. Turn towards two or three people in the room. I'll do the breakout rooms for the people that are on Zoom. Uh, and talk to each other about your experience of fear and your relationship to it. And just take like a couple of minutes and stay conscious. I only give you like five minutes for this. So don't talk the whole time. Remember, there's other people there listening to you. So talk for like two minutes and then pass it on. Don't tell us everything. Just a little bit about what your fears and your relationship to fear. And then pass it on. I think it's pretty common to come to Buddhism, come to meditation with a, um, sorry to, to diss you, I'm including myself in this, but to come with a naive or delusional idea that if you meditate enough, you'll get rid of the causes of uh, anxiety, you'll get rid of the um, afflictive emotions. that you won't be afraid anymore. Um, and perhaps there's some truth, my own experience and what I think happens and a more realistic goal is um, a really radical decrease in the amount of afflictive emotions that we experience, anger and fear and resentment and um, decrease drastically as we apply the teachings and we live this path of the eightfold path. There's a major decrease in how much we experience fear and, um, and craving and aversion and self-centeredness. It really does change gradually, slowly over the years and years of our practice but it doesn't completely go away. Um, there's part of the human mind, the survival instinct that even enlightenment can't override. What the goal, enlightenment, nirvana, awakening seems to do is so decrease and radically change our relationship to so that when fear is present, not a big deal. There's awareness, oh, it's fear has arisen in the mind. Hello, fear, how's it going? Friendliness, rather than, I gotta fucking do something to avoid this, suppress it, ignore it, act on it. Um, 
the way that the Buddhist teachings are written, um, preserved, that there is sometimes a setup uh, when you read the, the scriptures, the suttas, where it sounds, you know, the Buddha says things like, you know, I uprooted every shred of greed and hatred and delusion and fear. I, you know, I, I, I took it, you know, it completely left me. I no longer experienced. And so, it's, so it can set up that, uh, what I feel like is a, a, an unrealistic expectation of, of what we can experience if we sincerely practice. Because uh, on one hand, there are these teachings that give this sort of perfection model, perfectly enlightened with no difficult mind states, only compassion, only love, only wisdom all of the time, fearless. And then at the same time, he says, but, you know, Mara keeps coming back. Mara is the Buddhist uh, personification of difficult emotions, afflictive mind states, greed, hatred. Fear is, you know, the cousin of hatred, aversion, afraid of, feeling averse to, hating, pain, greed for craving, attachment to pleasure. Mara is the personification of craving and of aversion and of uh, self-centeredness. It's this, it's this demon. Uh, sometimes in the Tibetan art, Mara looks just like these guys. Your fear sometimes feel like these guys. I know at home you're not saying I'm pointing to these. These are Mahakala paintings. Uh, Mahakala and Mara in the Tibetan iconography often they look the same. They're these just fucking fierce fanged demons. I'm gonna bite your fuck. I'm gonna kill you. Put your skull on my crown. And really strong fear states can sometimes feel like it's like this terrifying demon in our mind and our heart that says, I'm going to kill you. The Buddha's experience was even fully enlightened. He um, never rid himself of Mara. Mara, the human experience, the natural part of the mind that gives us bad advice. Basically, Mara says, you should suffer about this, whatever it is. Mm. Anytime your mind is telling you, you should suffer about this mm. through clinging, through aversion, through taking it all real personal, self-centered, self-conscious, I, me, mind. And I'll classify all of that as Mara. And the Buddha said, I'm, I'm a fully awakened being. I suffer zero amount of the time, <laughs> zero suffering in my life. He 
He said, but even though I have zero suffering in my life, my mind, Mara, still attacks me at times. Fear still comes. Cravings still arise. Aversion, anger, fear, resentment. My mind still says, you know what? You should suffer about this. They did this to you. You should suffer about this. This might happen. You should suffer about this. You should feel anxious. You should feel afraid. You should feel unhappy because of something that is happening or might happen or happened, really fucking happened in the past. So the Buddha said, you know, I'm totally free from suffering, but it hasn't stopped Mara from visiting regularly. He said, I, I beat Mara. I saw through Mara. I, my whole enlightenment was coming to understand that that aspect of the human experience is not personal. It's not our fault, but is not to be believed and obeyed. That we can, through mindfulness, disconnect, dis, distance our uh, identification from those afflictive states and have a relationship to them. If we meditate long enough and hard enough and fast enough, <laughs> slow enough, I don't know. Do you meditate fast or slow? I hope this makes sense what I'm saying. Um, if you're familiar with these teachings on Mara, I know it does make sense. If it's new to you, try to get your mind around what we're saying is that uh, even enlightenment does not perfect the mind and get rid of our difficult mind states. The only thing that it perfects is our relationship to this mind that experiences fear and craving and self-centeredness. And when you no longer believe, you no longer suffer. You're no longer identified with, that's who I am. You're no longer so reactive and you no longer suffer about what's happening in your mind or your body. It's not resentment again, big surprise. Fear again, welcome. Craving, hello, I haven't seen you in 60 seconds. <laughs> or I haven't seen you in days, but here you are right now. Mara is visiting. I haven't seen you in months. Maybe, you know, if it's hard to say with the uh, historical teachings because they weren't written down for a long time. They were chanted for a long time. So we don't know exactly what the Buddha's experience with. What we know is that he regularly, over 40 times in the Pali Canon, the Buddha talks about Mara and his relationship to Mara. Mara as the personification of, a, of difficult mind states. He says, Mara keeps coming. Now, 40 times over a period of 40 years. So, 
who knows? Like, if that was literally true, could you imagine only having a difficult mind state once a year or so? But it would kind of catch you off guard if you were just like all serene all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, hatred. What the fuck? Why is hatred here? I haven't seen hatred in months. Just cruising around all peaceful, serene, happy, joyous, free, and all of a sudden lust comes up. What? What am I? Why am I all horny all of a sudden? I didn't I thought that shit had gone away. So it's probably my my sense is that it's not that it only happened once a year, only 40 times, but those are the teachings that got recorded, that it's consistently throughout the you know teachings that the Buddha regularly talked about these difficult mind states, even after enlightenment coming back. All of this is, you know, to say that. Um, I think we have to learn to live with some level of fear and that the process of decreasing the intensity and the um, effect and afflictiveness of of the fear that your mind and and body experience uh, is through meditation. Through meditation and through renunciation. You know, renunciation is, we're going to meditate in a minute, don't worry. I know you came here to sit. Where's my fucking meditation? I want, I want my money back. That's why I don't charge, because no refunds. Meditation, necessary to transform our relationship to emotion and to, to fear in particular topic tonight. But also we have to change our actions, renunciation. I, I used to live in so much fear when I was stealing and lying and violent my first 17 years or maybe 20 those first couple of years of sobriety, I was still stealing and fighting. <laughs> um, I was, I used to, I was so anxious that I was going to get caught for the unskillful lies that I'd told and things that I'd stolen and people that I'd hurt and crimes that I'd committed. Fear was just the constant. And my actions were creating that fear. When I stopped lying and stealing and hurting people, there was such a palatable, you know, eventually a palatable relief of like, and when I had made amends, right? Not only the renunciation, but then when I've taken responsibility and be like, yo, I stole from you, let me pay you back. I hurt you, let me make amends to you. I, and that clear slate of actually, the wreckage of the past, the unskillfulness of the past, isn't weighing so heavy on me because I've cleared it up. It doesn't stop my mind from still, you know, uh, sometimes saying like, well, you're a piece of shit, aren't you? You sold your mom's ring for crack? Fucking loser. You know, and then, but the other side of the mind, and that's Mara going like, you know, you should suffer about, you should feel shame, shame. The other side of my mind saying like, yeah, and I made amends and I 
you know, I'm doing my best to live a, a good, wholesome, kind, skillful life now, even though, of course, I've been unskillful in the past. Having that sort of ammunition, that Buddha uh, awakened kind mind to meet the Mara mind that says you should suffer about this. And then the wisdom to say, not worth suffering about. You've done what you can do. You can forgive yourself. But stay the course in the renunciation of lying and stealing and cheating and harming, intentionally uh, causing harm. Because the five precepts pr protect us from fear of the consequences of our actions because we renounce unskillful actions and then you're not afraid of getting either caught or karmically caught, <laughs> right? I feel like for us in traditional Buddhism, I think there's a lot of like fear of karma. Like I'm not gonna lie because I don't, I'm afraid of the karma of lying or I'm not gonna steal because I'm afraid of the karma. Like if you really truly believe in karma, it's a motivator to behave. Most of us don't believe in it that much to really motivate us to behave. Because <laughs> we're kind of like, well, whatever. Devil may care. So renunciation as an antidote to fear, huge one in my experience. And then meditation to do what I'm talking about, change our relationship and put fear in its right place and uh, see it as Mara and uh, meet it with kindness and with compassion, tend to it. Ultimately, mindfulness, there's I think, several ways to go about this and all of the practices that we do are gonna help. But mindfulness is gonna help change our relationship to fear in one really practical way, which is when you're afraid, your mind is in the future about something happening, worrying, anxious. When you come back to the now, present time awareness itself, mindfulness of breathing, breathing in, breathing out. Relief, disconnecting from the fear-based, identified with the fear-based thought, come back into the body. In the body, soften the tight belly, release your ass. <laughs> Open your fists, right? Rather than continuing to personify anger or fear, whatever it is, put your body in the posture of relaxation, even if the mind is still agitated, even if the body is still affected, softening the belly has been a huge practice for me, for many of you. My belly gets tight and I'm afraid. Soften, relax into, okay, just some anxiousness. Mindfulness, um, also second foundation leading to saying, oh, what an unpleasant feeling tone, second foundation, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. What an unpleasant sensation to have a tight jaw, belly, fist. Naming it, unpleasant, fear, unpleasant. 
the mind state itself, worrying, unpleasant. It's interesting how the mind loves to project into the future and plan and worry. And, and in a way, it thinks it's protecting us. If I really worry about this, then maybe it won't happen, or I'll be able to navigate it better when it does happen. If I really think about, if I suffer about it now, maybe it won't make it so bad later when it, and it's such a maladaptive tendency of our mind that doesn't, doesn't really work that way. But naming it, unfear, unpleasant, that in itself can help release, relinquish. And then ultimately, as we watch our mind, third, third foundation, watch how fear mind states arise and they pass, they're impermanent. Impermanence is always the great liberator when it comes to difficult experiences. The good news is it won't last forever, even though part of what fear says, this shit's never going to go away. It's going to be like this forever. And you say, like, oh, it's just fear. That's just a lack of understanding, lack of wisdom that everything's impermanent, especially our mind states. So transient. Try to hold on to a thought. Make it stay. You know, you're just watching it go like, no, gone, dissolving, coming back, dissolving, re-arising, dissolving. And the more you watch your mind, the more you see this cycle of thoughts appearing and disappearing and appearing and disappearing and proliferating. One of the things that the mind loves to do, the, especially when it's afraid, uh, is like free association, what we call proliferation. The Buddhist world word is... Um, Papancha. And it sounds, uh, I, like, I don't know, I like it because it kind of sounds like getting punched. Papancha. And it means like you hear a sound, you hear a car go by, and then it leads to a thought of a car. And then maybe it leads to craving and what kind of car you want, or maybe it leads to a memory of a car accident that you were in. And I'll, you know, and it's just like a sound leads to a memory, leads to a plan, leads to a fear, leads to all of a sudden you're sitting here re-experiencing some painful thing from the past or super afraid that it's something is going to, painful is going to happen in the future, that proliferation. So the more we're mindful and see, oh, this is just the nature of mind, it thinks, not your fault. Plans, worries, doubts, fears. The less identified with it as who we are, and the more we have that relationship to it. Oh, Mara, Mara's visiting. It's only been 40 seconds instead of once every year for 40 years. And if you're new to meditation, it might feel like, fuck, that's my whole, I know when I was new to meditation and I'd hear stuff like this, I'd be like, that's my whole experience. It's all Mara. It's all greed. It's all hatred. It's all delusion. I'm not getting much of any relief from it. 
I'm afraid all of the time, I'm angry all of the time, I'm self-centered all of the time. But then after some months of meditating and some years of meditating, starting to see the space between those thoughts and the identification with it lessening and the frequency lessening and the intensity lessening over the years of meditation practice. The bad news is meditation is slow as fuck. <laughs> you can meditate as fast as you want. Your transformation is going to be gradual. It's going to be over years of meditation practice, not a quick fix. Bad news, sorry. At one point the Buddha said, how, what's the fastest? Somebody asked him, how, you know, how long? He said, the fastest possible, seven years of intensive practice. First answer. And that was his experience, right? He left home meditated for seven years, some dead ends, some asceticism, some weird yoga workshops, and <laughs> came around to discovering mindfulness. Took him seven years. So his first answer was at least seven years of meditating to, to really break your identification with your fear, with your, the causes of suffering. It's going to take a while. And then he, he said, you know, but he said, that was my experience seven years. He said, but I didn't have a teacher or the instructions. I didn't have, and nobody taught me mindfulness. I had to figure that shit out on my own. Direct quote. I had to figure that shit out. <laughs> he said, you know, I had to discover this for myself. He said, I'm telling you, this is how to do it. This is what works four foundations of mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness. I'm giving you the instructions. You'll probably be able to do it in seven months of intensive practice. He says, and somebody who, you know, had the karma and is reborn in a, uh, you know, ripe state could probably do it in as short as seven days. Now I'm calling bullshit. <laughs> I don't know, maybe he's right. But to me, it feels like seven years. And also like, what's the definition of intensive practice? I think that the quote there in the sutta is something like continuous mindfulness. Have you ever gotten an hour of continuous mindfulness, much less seven days or seven months or seven years of continuous, never, distracted, never checked out, never, always here tending to your thoughts and emotions. That's the goal. Always here, aware of what's happening now and how it feels and responding to what you're feeling in a wise way. Not getting rid of it, relating to it. So maybe seven years, maybe seven months, maybe seven days. Uh, I'm told that the reason why uh, retreats, meditation retreats, uh, are often a week to 10 days for the kind of core meditation retreat experience is because of that quote. Goinka 
the Burmese meditation teacher who set up the 10 day Vipassana courses that uh, have become so popular. The reason it's 10 days is because maybe like the first day doesn't count. You're just settling in. But maybe if you're there for 10 days, you might get seven days of real practice because the last day doesn't count either because you're already checked out planning. Can't wait to get a burger when I get the fuck out of here or whatever it is you're planning for. So I hope that that helps a little bit mindfulness as, as an intervention to change our relationship to fear. Then the other piece are the, the heart practices, the loving kindness, the metta, what we call metta, unconditional friendliness teachings, where we meditate and we repeat over and over and we train our heart and our mind to, to meet our experience with friendliness and, and the wish, may I be at ease and meet all beings meet each other. May you be at ease. This teaching came about in a time where a bunch of monks came to the Buddha and said, we're really afraid. We're experiencing a lot of fear. We're meditating out here in the forest alone. And uh, this shit's scary. And whether you're meditating in the forest alone or not, just dealing with your own mind, this shit's scary. This is my own inner demons. Fucking these guys populating my brain. Shit's scary. He says, well, if you radiate loving kindness towards all living beings, including yourself, with the wish, may I be at ease, may you be at ease, may all beings be at ease, it will decrease fear. As long as you're in conflict, as long as you're self-cherishing your own safety, uh, you're going to be afraid of others. But when you're wishing love and kindness, compassion, well-being, may you be at ease, it will really radically change how much you're afraid of, of each other. Same thing with that self-centered suffering of what do people think about us, speaking in public or just you know, social anxiety. Do I fit in? Am I, do I, am I loved? Am I accepted? Am I, am I cool? Do you, you know, do you care about being cool? I don't know. I still do. My ego still is like, these are the right socks. <laughs> but the more we're not in that self-centered and we're in the sending loving kindness to other people, not worried about, do you accept me? Do you think I'm cool? Do you love me? But wishing for your happiness not even thinking about myself. May you be happy. May you be at ease. May you be free from judging and the suffering of judgment, including that judgment that's coming towards me or towards yourself. So loving kindness as, as an antidote to fear. Last thing, and I know I'm going on and we will meditate here in a minute. Last thing, uh, one of the things the Buddha said, he, he said that um, our fear of death, even though Harvard said it was number three, so it's one of the core motivators um, of, of fear, biggest experiences of fear that, that we experience. And 
In order to really change our relationship to fear, we have to change our relationship to death and to accept it and to turn towards it as an inevitability, as not a punishment, as a natural process. And he talked about how in his training, he uh, spent time in uh, cemeteries and in charnel grounds, uh, funeral pyres, uh, and how you know much fear his, his mind would produce around facing death. And he said, I just kept doing it until I was no longer afraid of it. Again, denial is not a uh, good strategy. And we live in a real culture of denial around death. And there's something natural about uh, avoiding and, and being afraid of death. So part of in the first foundation of mindfulness, uh, the reflection on the, the body as a corpse in the different stages of decay and making friends with impermanence, making friends with death. When you're not afraid to die, and you accept that eventually that's the nature of this body. It will alleviate a lot of the other uh, fuel for the fears that your mind produces. Because ultimately, when the mind's worried or afraid, it's about some kind of pain, and it's about that pain might kill me. But then if you could say, like, that's okay, that's, I'm open. <laughs> might kill me. All right. I'll be the first person to die of fear. I'll just sit here with it. Let it kill me. Let this guy bite my head off. So with that, you know, to I mean, we could do a whole series on fear and practices on fear to do it in one talks ambitious. Um, so tonight we could meditate, we could do mindfulness that will help change our relationship to fear. We could do loving kindness that will change our, we could do a corpse meditation, which might bring up some fear for you of death, which would be helpful for you to face it. So feel free to stretch for a moment and then we'll meditate if you want to. When you're ready, finding a way to Sit that is upright and relaxed. I know when I said a minute, I meant like 60 <laughs> seconds. Settling into a relaxed and upright posture. Allowing your eyes to be closed. 
And establishing mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental, kind awareness in your body. Softening your jaw, your brow, your shoulders. Softening your belly, releasing any, any unnecessary tension the body may be holding. The upright skeleton. Holding the flesh. Hanging loosely around the bones. Present time awareness ultimately is inclusive of the whole body, all of the sensations, all of the emotions, the sense doors of hearing and seeing, smelling, tasting, and all of the thoughts that arise in the mind. That's good to establish a narrower focus in the beginning of just paying attention to the sensations of the breath. Disengage from the thinking mind. Focus your attention on the sensations created by breathing. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out. Know the experience directly, the sensations of exhaling.
real new to practicing this kind of meditation, you can stick with the breath. Or you can expand the Buddha's encouragement was to become inclusive of the whole body, the impermanent nature of all sensation, how it's all changing all the time. Expanding to including the sense doors, the thoughts, the emotions. And awareness of the pleasant, unpleasant or neutral tone of our sensations, of our emotions. Observing your mind as thoughts arise and pass. Any fears arise in the mind, name them. Worry, fear, anxiousness. And meet it with as much kindness as you can, acceptance, not judgment. Friendliness.
Now begin to add the attitude of loving kindness, replace whatever thoughts are present in your mind with the thought, may all beings be at ease. May all living beings be at ease. including yourself in the all. May I learn to be at ease with a fear-based mind. May you learn to be at ease. Not free from fear, but with it. Extending it to your friends and family, your loved ones, people that you associate with, work with, the Sangha. Extending kindness, friendliness, well wishes, goodwill.
spending the last couple of minutes reflecting on the five daily remembrances. The Buddha encouraged us to remember on a daily basis that we are subject to aging, not exempt from aging. Any fear we may experience about getting old, we just turn towards it. Accepting that gravity will always win. Aging is natural. Reflecting on the truth that we are subject to sicknesses, viruses, diseases, injuries. This body is not exempt from illness. and reflecting on the inevitability of death. This body so very alive, mindful of the breath, the sensations, will cease to function. Not exempt from dying, from decaying, no longer existing in this form. This is true for each one of us and for each other, everyone we know. The fourth reflection is about impermanence and loss, accepting that everything that we love is impermanent, will end in loss. We don't get to keep anything. Everything will be separated from us, impermanent. How much of our fear is about losing something that we have, someone, some experience, or not getting what we want? Remembering the truth of impermanence, the inevitability of aging and sickness and death and loss. The final, the fifth, remembrance, recollection, is to remember 
that our karma, our actions, how we respond, how we relate to our experience, how we behave, the karma that we create is our only true possession. The only thing we actually own is our karma. Mindfulness will really help change your relationship to the fear-based thoughts, feelings you experience. Loving kindness will really help change your relationship to fear. Turning towards death, reflecting on it. These five recollections, remembrances, uh, consider putting them into your daily habit your daily practice. Each day, remind yourself that you are subject to aging, not exempt from it, that you are subject to sickness, not exempt from it. You're subject to death, not exempt from it. And that karma uh, is, is what we really own, how we behave. This maybe goes into reincarnation that you don't get to take any of your stuff with you. All that stuff you cling to. We cling to, not just you, we. (laughs) Well, the shit you're worried about, we are worried about. The only thing you get to take, how you showed up, how you responded. Karma comes with us. We own it. The material stuff rusts, <laughs> decays, goes to someone else. I hope that this was helpful, these reflections on fear and some Dharma uh, teachings and perspectives and ways to to work with it. Um, Good luck. Wish you well. Keep going on this path. It'll get better and better. And and your responses and your... uh, experiences will drastically change over the years of practice. 
that's all I got for tonight. I have a few announcements. Um, we have a seven day, and you could potentially get fully enlightened on this seven day retreat <coughs> in October against the stream, seven day silent meditation retreat up in the uh, mountains up near Big Bear, Angeles Mountains, um, about two hours away, hour and a half up into the mountains. On how fast you drive. Uh, there's room. There's. Uh, I'm trying to raise some money. I have a meeting with somebody this week about raising some scholarship money for it. I've been asked by a few people um, who want to attend that can't afford it. So I'm trying to create a scholarship fund. Against the streams, not financially in the best place. We're just sort of scraping by, paying the rent and um, the employees, and supporting me a little bit. So the way that this is done is based on the generosity of, of those of you who attend. So be as generous as possible. It sure would be nice to get back to the place where there's some abundance and we can easily offer scholarships and we can, you know, pay for the, you know, web people that we need and the social media people that we need and, and offer more programming and, and you can support me a bit more. That would be great. Um, so be as generous as you can. I'm fully committed to this. I had an interesting conversation. I was at a wedding this weekend with a, with a guy about the commodification and sort of mass marketing of spirituality that's happening, you know, on Instagram or wherever. And, uh, and he was sort of surprised that I'm still in this, like, you, te you teach for free? Like, you don't charge people? You got a hundred people at your class and you're not going to make any money off of it? Like, it was a little bit like, you're an idiot. <laughs> um, but I'm committed to, and sometimes I feel like that. Sometimes I'm like, fuck, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm getting paid. Um, but I'm committed. Buddhism was freely offered to me and has been freely offered for 2,600 years. And... Um, one of the things the Buddha said about teaching is that uh, you're, you cannot teach for the, uh, with the intention of financial gain. You have to teach from a place of compassion and a place of generosity and a place of, of freely offering of the Dharma. So I do that and I've been doing that on Monday nights for 17 years and it's worked out, right? We have a meditation center and I've been paying my rent and it's, it's okay. Um, but we're sort of rebuilding and we used to have a bunch of major donors. People used to write us $10,000 checks for the nonprofit and uh, none of that's happening these days. So I need to, I, I need to do some fundraising. I need to reach out to some people and ask them. I'm not good at it. You know, I kind of do the like, yeah, donate if you want to. Um, but the truth is we need it as a community, as a nonprofit, we need support. So if you're able to support, please do so. For the Monday night class, I encourage a 15 to $20 drop in. You know, if you're here, throw 15, 20 bucks in the bowl if you can. If you're online, go through the link that, that Jeff and Emily have put in the link. Uh, donate 15, 20 bucks if you can. And if what you can donate is five bucks, fine. If you can't donate anything, that is okay. You are welcome to be here. And I remain committed to uh, being kind of an idiot and just letting this thing you know, go in this way and, and not uh, making it about the money. But we live in this 
culture where money's necessary. So please be generous. If anybody wants to help um, build this scholarship fund so that some people can come to the retreat that can't afford it, just let me know directly and I'll take some donations and put them aside so that we can let people in. The retreat, seven day retreat, $750. Really afford, one of the cheaper seven day retreats I've been able to do and it's because it's at this camp that's not charging us much. And the 750 that we charge is just what the camp gets for the, well, the center that we rent. And then I don't get paid and I get donations for just like, tonight, um, get the donations. So, so be generous. One of the other ways that you can support against the stream, if you're interested, is become a monthly supporter. We have a handful of people that every month say, I want to give 25 or 50 or $108 a month, uh, whether I'm coming or not, not just this sort of fee for service. If I come to class, I donate. If I don't come to class, fuck you guys. Just, I always want to donate. I always want to support it. So here's a monthly uh, recurring billing support. And uh, some people in the community do that. I've always hoped that we could get to the place with the monthly supporters where we could pay the rent, which is 3,500 a month for this room. Um, we're not there yet. So if you can help us get there, it'd be great just to pay the rent. Um, not have to worry about that. I think that's the only announcement. The next day along I have isn't until uh, November. So I'll talk about that later. And uh, sorry for going on so long tonight and not getting a longer meditation. We only got about 20 minutes and usually we sit for 30 minutes. But, uh, you know, I was afraid I wasn't going to have enough to say. But I had too much to say. Welcome to everybody new. Good to see everybody. Gathering the merit that is uh, developed through these kinds of practices and conversations, extending this merit outward in all directions, shared with all living beings. May each one of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hope to see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.